0: Welcome to the Nauticast podcast, the one true chapter-by-chapter podcast going through a song of ice and fire. I'm one of your hosts, Emmett, also known as Poor Quentin. And I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And welcome to the 187th episode of the Nauticast, titled The King's Justice, Part 2, an analysis of A Storm of Swords Davos IV, in which Davos gets a promotion to Hand of the King, a job he absolutely does not want. Right now, Ned Stark is looking down from heaven like... Been there, buddy. Or maybe looking up from the crypts. I'm not sure how it works. Oh, do we even know where Ned's looking on this from? <laughs> That's true. His bones are lost at this point. He's looking on this from the neck, or maybe Barbary Dustin has him. Wherever Ned is, he feels for you, Davos. He's been there. So our spoiler warning, as always. Prepare to be spoiled for all published books, the five novels, the three Duncan Egg novellas, histories, interviews, the Winds of Winter sample chapters, as well as Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon, the TV shows. Anything and everything. Our question for this episode comes from a Lady Ken of House Motown, goddess of sips and wine, who asks, Doesn't it seem odd that the II doesn't have a lot of rumored bastards? Theories about the Lannister brood aside, and knowing that he may not have spent much time on Dragonstone, it used to be a big deal to create, and be, Dragonseed. We know that he was virile, lusty, and not constrained by his marital vows, so why no bastards? Also, bonus question, what is the point of the Black Pearls? There has to be some future intention by George for them to keep coming up on the page, especially since the current Black Pearl's power seems to have been shown in the Mercy Winds of Winter chapter. Thanks. And uh, yeah, in terms of heirs 2 and and fathering bastards, yeah, there is there is one main rumor about that, but it's it's not in universe. It's it's among the fans, and those rumors have flown over the years. Yeah, you're talking about the Lannisters. <laughs> no, nah,
1: all Tywin's kids are clearly his. All of them. All of them. Uh, clearly, and I think this has been. Uh... Litigated on this podcast before, but Tyrion as a Targaryen is a very popular theory. I'm going to actually plant my flag as a Jamie Cersei as Eris uh, offshoots. Um, not right. as I believe that to be true. I just like the idea of it, especially because so. of the incest, because of Joffrey. I think there's a nice flow through with all that. Um, I don't actually think any. I'm actually kind of an anti Tyrion Targ person. Um, I've kind of like been beaten into believing it is the truth, although I still kind of like Tyrion <laughs> as Tywin's son. Sure. But uh, getting to actually Eris and his bastards, I think there are a couple things that work here. Uh, first of all, I think it's possible he has bastards, but the way he's described as maybe being lecherous or lusty could mean any number of things outside of procreative sex. Um, and based on some of what is written in the world of ice and fire, where it says some have said that he had many mistresses. So you're already like doing the Donald Trump. Other people are saying these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and there might be a little bit. We're just assuming he's bad on this based on what we know with Joanna, um, what we know with Rayella, um, and just that the Mad King is not someone we generally put positive <laughs> attributes on. <laughs> yep. um, but there might also have been some kind of, in-house policy that after Aegon IV, you just do not want your bastards running around because that just kind of undermines the legitimacy of the Targaryen reign, um, or at least opens itself to further attacks on its legitimacy or who should be the true king or whatnot. So there might just be a little bit like, he doesn't want bastards. And with House of the Dragon, we saw that Lady Massaria says she can't have children. So it's possible that, you know, Aeris picked out women that are unable to procreate for whatever reasons. Um, it's possible that Aerys himself may have had any kind of, you know, procreative issues along the ways. But I think mostly it comes down to the fact that. We kinda need to know who Eris and Rhaegar's children are explicitly for the stuff with Dan Danny and Jon and possibly even Tyrion to really work. I, I we have our Aegon 6 now, our young grift there to be like a fake, but I don't think we're gonna get any more like legitimate bastards coming out of Aerys 2 at this point.
0: Agreed across the board, but especially that last point. It's the same reason that as many people have pointed out that it's not really realistic that there aren't any Stark cousins. Like, they're a big family, they've been around for a long time, yet yeah, you have offshoot branches like the Karstarks, but, like, really? How many only children have there been? There's, the Starks haven't propagated much, and of course the reason is because, well, then George would have to deal with those characters when he's already having kind of a headache coming up with the inheritance plot for the North, and yeah, same thing here. Those those characters would just kind of clutter up and get in the way, and yeah, as far as the, yeah, the Lannister and Targaryen stuff, as you say, we've gone over that once or twice or ten times on the podcast before. I, I've seen a lot of the evidence for Tyrion Targaryen. In the very uh, next chapter, we're doing A Storm of Swords, Jamie 5. Jamie goes right from talking about Tyrion setting the Blackwater on fire to talking about Eris and the Wildfire. So I'm like, yeah, okay, there are is, there is some connections being drawn. I've always just felt, and this is a kind of writing process thing, like it would just be weird to have all this build up to the reveal of John. And then George is going to be like, oh, and also Tyrion, too. Like, that, I, you know, obviously he could manage that. He's a great writer, but that that's always kind of where, why it felt off to me. Jamie and Cersei, while it doesn't. I think add up logistically and wouldn't really add anything to their characters. There is, there is something I love about it with the incest, as you say, and the idea that Jamie might've unknowingly killed his own father and sat on his throne. And it was, you know, I think Cersei, Cersei is just supposed to be like Eris with her love for the wildfire, but that wouldn't add a layer if she, if she was quite literally his daughter um so yeah definitely not them maybe Tyrion, but i think regardless of whether or not it's true i think it's all interesting stuff to think about because it just adds to the already extremely dysfunctional relationships these three have with their father and even more so with each other what about the uh the black pearl what do you think that's in for is that going to pay off in some way i mean i honestly
1: had to like go to a wiki of ice and fire really quick on this one because i'm like black pearl is this a pirates of the caribbean question (laughs) but yeah now and when does
0: davy jones show Mm -hmm. up Oh, that's Euron. He's already here.
1: So yeah, I think so the Black Pearl is basically a possible descendant of Aegon the Fourth, or like a couple lines down or a couple levels down from one of his bastards or someone he fucked, you know. You know how it goes with Aegon the Unworthy. Mm-hmm. Um where I could see this actually going is if Daenerys goes through Bravos on her way back to Westeros. Um then it might be possible for her to encounter the black pearl or at least see oh a targaryen bastard um which could be kind of a setup before she like encounters say young griff or john himself or I guess those would be the only two people at this point, so it could be kind of like a stepping stone to those other characters, um, but I am not 100% sure exactly how Danny's going to get to Westeros at this point. At one time, I thought she was going to go east to go west, and that looks to be off the table, um, and then going through Pentos seems like a given, given that's where she started and Maester Illyrio, whether she decides to go north to Braavos from there or like it could go many of ways she could go straight from slavers bay to dorne or dragonstone like the show did um i'm not 100% sure i think she kind of does have to at least stop in pentos but bravos i'm a little less sure on if she's actually going to stop there but how about you do you have any thoughts on this
0: yeah i'm with you in terms of danny's plot east or, i mean danny's plot west rather being the uh, the big kind of sticking point here because there are so many routes that George probably had in mind and aren't working now, like she was supposed to go to Washai. I'm sure he's struggling with it right now, how to fit in everything she's got to do, because she's got all these characters to meet, you know, and she's still got to get back from the Dothraki Sea before she can do any of it. Uh, Volantis, he builds up so strongly in dance. I feel like we got to have a payoff there. And then agreed about Pentos, full circle for her, got to do with Hilario. Plus, that's just the closest to King's Landing, so geographically it makes sense to ha- kind of have that be her launching pad, literally. And it also would make sense for her to go to Bravos in that she has a history there, but my instinct with any element of Bravos, is always it's probably not going to pay off because George has said he's got like a whole novel's worth of storylines he can do in Bravos that just aren't going to fit because he's just got to get Arya back to Westeros. And Bravos is just frustrating for me because I love it just on its own terms as a setting. I love that kind of city. I love that kind of city in the real world, but also specifically in fantasy fiction. I love it when authors update and they go from like a medieval fantasy to the renaissance era or something resembling that i think that's great i think that's fresh and there's so there's such cool stories of like intrigue and and thieves and stuff you can draw from history to tell in that kind of place and we see a little bit of that with aria but i think george is kind of lucked into an incredible setting that he only had a little bit of narrative space for and i'm sure he would love to tell more stories there but i think i think the black pearls like the Sea Lord, like a lot of stuff going on in Bravos, might end up being window dressing more than anything, which is fine. And then maybe, you know, if, if George lives to 120 as he's planning to, maybe he can write another novel set there. I know there's some good fan fiction set in Bravos, but um, I, I fear this might be another intriguing part of that storyline that, that doesn't pay off hugely, hugely uh, in the pages to come. But I would be, I would be happy to be wrong. So, it's
1: kind of almost like the Tyrion Targaryen theory. Like, it might be something yeah. that's true, but not explicitly said or confirmed or can just exist in the margins. The black girl exactly. almost feels like something that kind of adds a little bit of color to this world. And whether she actually matters to any of our main point of view characters
0: um, for the end game, we will just have to see. But it could very much, she's just there. Summed it up perfectly. Answered both questions. Um, so, thank you to Lady Ken for the question. As always, if you'd like to ask us questions, we are forced to answer here in the Not a Cast podcast. You can go on over to Patreon.com/NautaCast ASOIAF. Uh, patrons at the Sworn Sword or uh, higher level tiers get to send us in questions and also get other great benefits, including exclusive episodes, early access to our regular episodes, and access to the Nauta Slack. But you know, I had to jump right back into one of my favorite chapters, A Storm of Swords, Davos Four. So here is the synopsis for the second half of the chapter. Axel Florent leaves the chamber of the Painted Table, In about damn time. Stannis calls Davos presumptuous for telling him he's wrong, and reminds Davos that he can have his tongue removed as easily as he did Davos' fingers. I'm your man, your grace, so it is your tongue to do with as you please. Well, this got sexy in a hurry. Welcome to the NadaCast After Hours edition. Ow, ow! Stannis sweeps the pieces off the painted table, pins Davos down, and... Okay, no. Stannis monologues instead. That gets him off, I guess. Aerys, if you only knew. That was a hard choosing. My blood or my liege. "'My brother or my king?' he grimaced. "'Have you ever seen the Iron Throne? "'The barbs along the back, the ribbons of twisted steel, "'the jagged ends of swords and knives all tangled up and melted? "'It is not a comfortable seat, sir. "'Ares cut himself so often, men took to calling him King Scab, "'and Magor the Cruel was murdered in that chair. "'By that chair, to hear some tell it. "'It is not a seat where a man can rest at ease. "'Oftimes I wonder why my brothers wanted it so desperately.' Davos asks the question, we're all thinking, why the hell do you want it so badly then? Stannis, dusting off the rule book that only he has read, declares that it's not about wanting, he's Robert's legal heir, and Shireen is his heir. Stannis has a duty to his daughter, to the realm, and even to Robert, despite the relationship being dysfunctional, to put it mildly. Stannis wants to bring justice to Cersei for her many sins. She cuckolded at Robert, true, she killed him. Also true, and she killed John Arryn and Ned Stark. Oof! Damn, you were so close to a perfect score. But Stannis doesn't intend to stop with Cersei and her kids. I mean to scour that court clean, as Robert should have done after the Trident. Sir Barristan once told me that the rotten King Aerys's reign began with Varus. The eunuch never should have been pardoned, no more than the Kingslayer. At the least, Robert should have stripped the white cloak from Jaime and sent him to the wall, as Lord Stark urged. He listened to John Arryn instead. I was still at Storm's End, under siege and unconsulted. Just when you're settling in for another classic no-one-likes-me monologue from Stannis, he changes the subject, asking why Davos wanted to assassinate Melisandre. Davos accuses the Red Woman of burning his sons on the Blackwater. Stannis, actually quite sensibly, points out that Melisandre wasn't responsible for the wildfire. Blame Tyrion. Blame the alchemists. Blame Imri Florent for falling into the trap. Damn, that family really is the worst. (laughs) Or even blame Stannis himself for sending Melisandre away before the battle. Holy shit, everyone. Stannis just took responsibility. Someone get him a gold star. Put it right on the fridge for everyone to see it. Davos keeps pressing, saying that Melisandre murdered Cressen, Renly, and Courtney Penrose. Stannis argues that Melisandre merely saw Renly's death coming. The Red Woman was with Stannis when Renly died. Yeah, I have no doubt of that. Stannis says that Melisandre was the one who wanted to give Renly a last chance to bend the knee and she was also the one who urged Stannis to spare Davos, rather than let Axel Florent burn him alive. Davos is surprised by that. Melisandre knows he's no friend of hers. But, Stannis says, Melisandre knows Davos is a true and loyal servant to their king. Stannis changes the subject again, saying that, quote, the boy is sick, and that Maester Pylos has been leeching him. Davos thinks they're talking about his son Devon, the king's squire, But while Stannis only has praise for Devon, that's not the boy he's talking about. He means Robert's bastard son, Edric Storm, who quite literally ran into Davos down in Egon's garden. Stannis sighed. Did the boy charm you? He has that gift. He got it from his father, with the blood. He knows he is a king's son, but chooses to forget that he is bastard-born. And he worships Robert, as Renly did when he was young. My royal brother played the fond father on his visits to Storm's End... And there were gifts. Swords and ponies and fur-trimmed cloaks. The eunuch's work. Every one. The boy would write the red keep full of thanks, and Robert would laugh and ask Varus what he'd sent this year. Renly was no better. He left the boy's upbringing to castellans and maesters, and every one of them fell victim to his charm. Penrose chose to die, rather than give him up. The king ground his teeth together. Still angers me. How could he think I would hurt the boy? I chose Robert, did I not? when that hard day came, I chose blood over honor. Davos suddenly realizes that Stannis is refusing to call Edric by his name, which creeps Davos right the hell out. He says he hopes Edric, hear that, Edric, will recover soon, but Stannis says it's no more than a fever. And anyway, the boy doesn't matter. Only his blood. King's blood has power in it, according to, who else, Melisandre. Stannis turns to the painted table, changing the subject without warning, yet again. Is he trying to set some sort of record here? Thankfully this is such iconic shit, that all I want to do is read it aloud anyway. Look at it Onion Knight. My realm, by rights. My Westeros. He swept a hand across it. This talk of seven kingdoms is a folly. Aegon saw that 300 years ago when he stood where we are standing. They painted this table at his command. Rivers and bays they painted, hills and mountains, castles and cities and market towns, lakes, swamps, forests, but no borders. It is all one, one realm, for one king to rule alone. One king, agreed Davos. One king means peace. I shall bring justice to Westeros. I think Sir Axel understands as little as he does war. Claw Isle would gain me naught. And it was evil, just as you said. Seltigar must pay the traitor's price himself in his own person, and when I come into my kingdom, he shall. Every man shall reap what he has sown, from the highest lord to the lowest gutter rat, and some will lose more than the tips off their fingers. I promise you. They have made my kingdom bleed, and I do not forget that. King Stanis turned from the table. On your knees, on your knight, your grace, for your onions and fish, I made you a knight once. For this. I am of a mind to raise you to lord. This? Davos was lost. I am content to be your knight, your grace. I would not know how to begin being lordly. Good. To be lordly is to be false. I have learned that lesson hard. Now kneel, your king commands. Davos knelt, and Stannis drew his longsword. Lightbringer, Melisandre had named it. The red sword of heroes, drawn from the fires where the seven gods were consumed. The room seemed to grow brighter as the blade slid from its scabbard the steel had a glow to it, now orange, now yellow, now red. The air shimmered around it, and no jewel had ever sparkled so brilliantly. But when Stannis touched it to Davos's shoulder, it felt no different than any other longsword. "'Sir Davos of House Seaworth,' the king said, "'are you my true and honest liegeman, now and forever? I am your grace. And do you swear to serve me loyally all your days, to give me honest counsel and swift obedience?' To defend my rights in my realm against all foes in battles great and small. To protect my people, and punish my enemies. I do your grace. Then rise again Davos Seaworth, and rise as Lord of the Rainwood, Admiral of the Narrow Sea, and Hand of the King. And the crowd goes wild! Davos protests, saying he's not fit to be a king's hand. Stannis pulls Davos to his feet, and says there's no one better for the job. Hard to disagree, especially when the alternative is another Florent. Davos warns the king that his lords will never bay an up smuggler like him, but Stannis reassures him that, in that case, they'll make new lords. Easy peasy. Just that simple. Davos, desperately looking for a way out of this, says he's illiterate. Stannis points out that book learning is the maester's job. And anyway, Davos's predecessor, Lord Asshole Florent, wrote himself into an early grave. Or an urn. There's not going to be much of him left, so urn it is, I <laughs> guess. All Stannis wants from Davos is honesty, loyalty, and service. The Davos brand. Plus, Stannis is pretty much out of other competent cronies. Davos is the one he trusts, the one the king wants beside him for the battle. Davos, whose brand is also not knowing when to stop talking, says that Lord Asshole Florent had a point. We are not strong enough to fight another battle against the Lannisters. It is the great battle his grace is speaking of, said a woman's voice, rich with the accents of the East. Melisandre stood at the door in her red silks and shimmering satins, holding a covered silver dish in her hands. These little wars are no more than a scuffle of children before what is to come. The one whose name may not be spoken is marshalling his power, Davos Seaworth, a power fell and evil and strong beyond measure. Soon comes the cold and the night that never ends. She placed the silver dish on the painted table. Unless true men find the courage to fight it. Men whose hearts are fire. Damn, you thought the subject changes were abrupt before. Stannis tells Davos that he has seen a vision in the flames, which surprises Davos. He doesn't think Stannis would lie about something like that. The king says that after the battle, when he was just about ready to give up, Melisandre directed him to stare into the fire. Suddenly, Stannis saw the rising ashes transform into falling snow, and the sparks became a ring of torches surrounding a hill in a forest. There were men wearing black there, strange shapes in the snow, and despite the fire, Stannis felt a terrible cold. Davos doesn't know what any of that means, because he didn't read Sam's first chapter in this book, but Melisandra, what a surprise, thinks she knows what it means. It means that the battle is begun. The sand is running through the glass more quickly now, and man's hour on Earth is almost done. We must act boldly, or all hope is lost. Westeros must unite beneath her one true king, the prince that was promised, lord of Dragonstone, and chosen of Relor. Lord chooses quailly, then. The king grimaced, as if he tasted something foul. Why me, and not my brothers? Renly and his peach. In my dreams, I see the juice running from his mouth, the blood from his throat. If he had done his duty by his brother, we would have smashed Lord Tywin. A victory even Robert could be proud of. Robert. His teeth ground side to side. He is in my dreams as well. Laughing. Drinking. Boasting. Those were the things he was best at. Those and fighting. I never bested him at anything. The Lord of Light should have made Robert his champion. Why me? Because you are a righteous man, said Melisandre. Stannis moves to the silver platter and wonders whether leeches are really the weapon of a righteous man. Melisandre says, for what is clearly the thousandth time, that no, leeches are really not the way. Stannis says that she swore it would work. Melisandre says it both will and won't, because being needlessly cryptic is her brand. I swear, her and Quaithe must share an allergy to clarity. The Red Woman says that she's got something other than leeches in mind. Give me the boy, Your Grace. It is the sure way, the better way. Give me the boy and I shall wake the stone dragon. Stannis says that Edric, I'm sorry, the boy, is innocent. And anyway, the dragons are gone forever. Well, I have some good slash bad news for you there, Your Grace. He commands Melisandre to use the leeches instead. She tosses a powder into the fire, and as the flames leap up, she uncovers the dish to reveal the leeches, full of blood that Davos knows is Edric's. Stannis stretched forth a hand, and his fingers closed around one of the leeches. Say the name, Melisandre commanded. The leech was twisting in the king's grip, trying to attach itself to one of his fingers. The usurper, he said, Joffrey Baratheon. When he tossed the leech into the fire, it curled up like an autumn leaf amidst the coals and burned. Stannis grasped the second. The Usurper, he declared, louder this time. Baelin Greyjoy. He flipped it lightly onto the brazier, and its flesh split and cracked. The blood burst from it, hissing and smoking. The last was in the king's hand. This one he studied a moment, as it writhed between his fingers. The Usurper, he said at last. Robb Stark. And he threw it on the flames. And that finally wraps us up for A Storm of Swords Davos 4. Menu, can you forgive me for making you do this in two parts? Yeah, really
1: splitting this chapter in two is the check on your love for Stannis. <laughs>
0: but I'm a sick, in- sick man. I am unwell. I cheerfully admit this.
1: But I think in juxtaposing the two halves, we were, we we're able to synthesize a little more meaning as the events of the first half are a shadow on the wall for the second. Like Melisandra, this chapter works in two opposites. Rolor and the other, light and shadow, fire and ice. We talked about metaphorical monsters with Sir Axel's plan last time. Now it's actual monsters descending from the north. The fire taken away from Lord Alistair to start the chapter, the pyre to which are given three kingly leeches, Sir Axel and his petty scheming versus Melisandra and her godly visions. If the first half of this chapter was the Game of Thrones, then the second half is the Song of Ice and Fire.
0: Yeah, a lot of what makes this chapter great is how it weaves together every element of the story. Even though, like I said last time, it's just a couple people talking in a room. After all, it's taking place around the painted table, a microcosm of the entire continent. It's the game board of a Song of Ice and Fire. So we get the politics of the realm, but also the rising tide of magic. And it's all filtered not only through Davos' character arc, but also Stannis's. As the chapter goes along you get the sense that the dialogue is drilling down to the core of it all some meeting point where political action mystical prophecy and your own individual choices all directly interact it's such a rush to watch this thing build as davos is named hand of the king only to confront the terrible possibilities of where this storyline might go next this is just george at his best so where we left off last time Davos had just hit Stannis with an arrow to the heart
1: so perfectly you would be mistaken for Legolas. <laughs> Choosing between Robert and Eris is one of the hardest choices Stannis ever had to make, and it really tests his forbearance for Davos to throw it in his face in defense of Lord Celtigar's sworn men. Despite all this, though, Davos is Stannis's man through and through, saying his body and tongue are his to do with as he pleases. He's both immediately and ultimately loyal to Stannis, and just so happens to phrase it in a way that makes the Stavos shippers go wild. (laughs) I kid with that last, but as Emmett will get into here in a second, there's something real and forged between Stannis and Davos. They aren't just here together because they grew up together or were in the same high school classes. Fate and or chance brought them together, and nigh 20 years later, this is the fruit of that constantly growing relationship.
0: And that's in spite of the fact that Stannis is still pretty pissed off at Davos for calling him out like that. We'll see this again when Davos encourages Stannis to go to the Wall after sending away Edric Storm. And Stannis praises Davos for that, tells Jon, Yeah, Davos reminded me of my duty. He really had the right idea. I was wrong. But he still doesn't want Davos to be near him after that. He leaves him at Eastwatch, sends him away to White Harbor. And Jon says in Dance with Dragons, Yeah, it seems like the Kingsmen faction did something on Dragonstone, because Stannis is really pissed off at them. And you can always tell when Davos in particular was pushing Stannis's buttons, because that's when the king refers to Davos as smuggler. It's a reminder that Davos started at the bottom of the ladder, and could be back there again. He has no family wealth to sustain him, and no great allies to call upon. His only friend is Salador, and if he left with Sala, he'd have to give up everything he ever got from Stannis. It's a zero-sum game. Davos has to reassure Stannis that his criticisms come from a place of loyalty. My tongue is yours, he says, to do with as you please. Kind of hard not to see that as innuendo. The same with what Stannis tells Jon about Davos when he gets to the Wall. If not for my hand, I might not have come at all. While I don't think there's any actual romance at work between the king and his onion knight, there is that intimacy I talked about last time. Only Davos gets away with talking to Stannis like this. And he only does so because of a deep, mutual devotion. A sense that only the two of them really understand each other. And that cuts across the differences in birth, at least to an extent. Stannis is alienated from his own class, and Davos' loyalty to Stannis estranges him from his class, I think about what Salador tells him in A Dance with Dragons. He will kill you with these honors, old friend. Yet their relationship is always filtered through those same class dynamics, because in order for Davos to keep his head above water, he has to frame himself as the ideal vassal. The irony being that none of the people born to lordship actually uphold the feudal contract as well as Davos, who wasn't born to this life, but acquired it through his own individual actions just like how Brienne is the truest knight of all without actually being one. Davos and Brienne are a lot alike, in many ways, the closest thing to moral compasses that we get in A Song of Ice and Fire. By affirming that contract, saying I am your man, Davos gets Stannis to calm down. The king acknowledges that truth is what he wants from Davos, even though truth tastes bitter, as he says. It's better than getting your ass kissed by people like the Florence, who will then turn around and stab you in the back. So a lot of what they talk about is some
1: Monday morning quarterbacking of Robert's rebellion or the fallout immediately thereafter. Um, mistakes he doesn't plan to make that Robert did. Varys and Jamie Lannister will both be removed, Cersei and her pride disposed of. A clean slate, which was not what John Aaron had counseled when Robert took the throne, even when Ned voiced in opposition to that. Part of me also wonders if there's something left unsaid about Stannis' assignment to Dragonstone. Robert couldn't be bothered to change up his middle managers underneath him. Ah, they're fine, just leave them there. But then he does take an active hand in installing Grenly as Lord of Storm's End, while Stannis is shipped off to dark and not particularly profitable fiefdom of Dragonstone, another quote-unquote sacrifice
0: Stannis bore on behalf of his brother's crown. That's a great point, that when Robert bothered to intervene, it was only to make things worse for Stannis. And part of the reason Stannis is so pissed off at how Robert mismanaged his reign is that it seems like a a waste of all the sacrifices that went into making Robert king. No one sacrificed more than Stannis. According to Stannis, anyway, who could have seen that coming? As he says, while Jon Arryn formed the new government, Stannis was still under siege at Storm's End, unconsulted. He would have starved there if not for Davos, and yet he was prepared to do so. Not only because Stannis is stubbornness personified and would literally rather die than let the Tyrells win, but also because he was doing it for Robert, the brother he loved, in spite of their horrible relationship. That was a choice he made, a hard choice, he tells Davos, between the bonds of blood and his oath to the crown. The strict legalist worldview he was just advocating about Claw Isle would have led him to back the Mad King, but he violated that ethos out of love for Robert. And for what? Also, Robert could take the Iron Throne which Stannis accurately describes as a monstrosity that destroys those who sit on it. Once again, Stannis proves himself a history nerd, talking about how Maegor was murdered on that throne. Maybe by the throne itself, if the stories are true. Regardless of whether they are, the story has a symbolic potency. Political power, like sorcery, is a sword without a hilt. There is no safe way to grasp it. Stannis is more book smart than his brothers, and thinks about questions like this more deeply. In Davos' next chapter, he declares again that power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Last night, gazing into that hearth, I saw things in the flames as well. I saw a king, a crown of fire on his brows, burning. Burning, Davos. His own crown consumed his flesh and turned him into ash. Do you think I need Melisandre to tell me what that means? Or you? So the reader is probably asking the same question as Davos. If you know the throne is bad for you... If you know it ultimately did Robert no good, and probably would have done the same for Renly, why do you want it? And I think a lot of people take Stannis' answer too literally, when he says it's not a question of wanting, it's law, I am king, wants do not enter into it. That is transparently bullshit. (laughs) Stannis just confessed that he defied the law when it came to the Targaryen regime. He chose Robert instead. So, clearly, wants did enter into it. Stannis didn't want to betray his brother. As I keep saying, strict legalism is a fig leaf when it comes to Stannis' motivations. It's not what he really believes, it's what he pretends to believe. It's not about the law, it's about Robert, and also Renly, aka young Robert. They're still haunting him, as he says toward the end of the chapter. The truth is that Stannis wants the throne in spite of knowing what a cancer it is, because the alternative would be admitting everyone was right to overlook and ignore him, including his own brothers, and he just cannot accept that. He would rather burn his own daughter alive than be a page in someone else's history book, like he says in the show, which is why I think he's such a well-written character. You have these strong motivations that come through despite never actually going inside his head. It's all in the dialogue. Look at how he lists his reasons for keeping his campaign going. I have a duty to my daughter, yeah sure, I have a duty to the realm, yada yada yada, and I have a duty to Robert. And then he's right back to talking about Robert, how Cersei cuckolded him and killed him, how Robert should have scoured that court clean. Ooh, I would have done that if I'd been there, but no one was asking me. That's what drives him. Not the realm, not Shireen. It's that whole Robert left behind.
1: And honestly, it's humorous, but also forebodingly haunting that he invokes his daughter more here in terms of her direct rights to the Iron Throne than he has seemingly all series so far, and not really in any sort of fatherly love sort of way. It definitely feels like an excuse, the appropriate way to paper over the actual animating factor, as you just described. And given where we think Stannis and Shireen are heading,
0: to crown him is to kill her. Yep, that's right. And it's, uh, yeah, I agree totally. He's trying to paper it over by saying, look, I have an heir. Uh, You know, you could put me in charge and not worry. Things would proceed after me. But clearly, that's, that's not really what's driving him. And as always with Stannis, I come away from this feeling two ways at once. On one hand, it's hard to disagree that Robert just let a lot of problems fester, and he might have been better off using Stannis as an attack dog, the bad cop to Renly's good cop. There is a real catharsis to imagining, to imagining Stannis eradicating what Barristan calls the rot of court politics, especially after watching it claim poor old Ned Stark. There's this bit in Theon's released Winds of Winter chapter where Stannis is, is pissed off as usual, and he just he mutters to Theon, but really more to himself, "'Would that all the lords in the Seven Kingdoms had but a single neck.'" And that's kind of awesome. I've had similar thoughts reading this story. Yeah, fuck them all. Clean slate. So what's the problem? I think about what Galadriel says in Lord of the Rings, when Sam says, you should take the ring, my lady. You could wipe out our enemies in a single stroke. And she replies, that is how it would begin. But it would not stop with that, alas. Stannis just doesn't know when to stop. You can see that here when he talks about Jamie and Varus in the same breath, like they're equally responsible for the corruption of the court. Now, that's just not true. Varus encouraged Eris' madness, and Jamie ended it, as we'll talk more about next time. The bad cop good cop analogy for Stannis and Renly is a great one.
1: Varus, in Ned's 15th and last chapter, calls them the Iron Gauntlet and the Silk Glove. Stannis is more soldier than politician, and his thinking is focused on his enemies and less so, say, transitions of power. Even Littlefinger knows as much and says so in Eddard 13. He'd pick a new hand and counsel, and Tywin and his allies would probably rise up against him to put him down. And while I'll do my utter best to leave the Jamie chat for next episode, I do think this exchange is a tee-up for revelations to come in the Hall bathtub. The reader is spending a fair amount of time thinking about Eris and how he ended, right before we get the real story about Eris and how
0: he ended. These chapters aren't just back-to-back to to make me and Emmett happy. They are done so very deliberately. (laughs) It's just icing on the cake. It makes us happy. But no, absolutely. That sequencing is very deliberate. And then right after that, we get the Tyrion chapter where Oberyn Martell comes to town for revenge for his relatives who were killed during that exact same era. So it's it's definitely all deliberate. The the other problem is the question of what happens after Stannis cleanses the court. Unlike Cregan Stark, he's not just going to go home. Job well done. If Stannis went on to govern in peacetime... His political limitations would really start to tell. He's not good at making friends, or at least not compared to his brothers. It's a complicated knot to untangle, one that I think is relevant to real-world politics. How do we deal with the reality that there is no one human vessel worthy of the reform we might like to see? Yeah, I find something deeply funny about
1: the Baratheon brothers Mm -hmm. in that you have these two extremes in Redley and Stannis, and then you supposedly split the difference in Robert, the real steel or true steel or whatever. I forget (laughs) which is the Donald Noy quote and which the Hugh Jackman movie. But Robert also sucked at being king, shattering the idea that you just want someone in the middle of the spectrum or, or that it takes more to rule than just moderation. But finally, finally, we get to the question that has been bugging Davos since he was called before his king. Does Stannis know he tried to murder the Red Woman? A resounding yes to that, and when asked about it, Davos claims it was she who gave her sons to the flames. Not Tyrion Lannister, not King Joffrey, not Sir Imri Florent leading the fleet headlong into battle without scouting ahead. Stannis the ever-benevolent Stannis, takes the blame (laughs) upon himself, if Davos must blame someone. Davos is consumed by revenge at this point, his only truth that Melisandre killed his sons, and his only goal in turn to kill Melisandre. He thought about that even upon release from the dungeons earlier this chapter. It's all very personal to him. But in an uncharacteristic move, Team Dragonstone is going to throw water on the fire burning inside the Onion Knight. Davos is shocked to learn it was Melisandre who sent for him from the dungeons, and who had discouraged Sir Axel from burning Davos alive. Stannis revels in this bit of shock, flashing a thin smile even.
0: See, I told you this is the most jovial we've seen Stannis. (laughs) He's in party mode now, or at least as close to party mode as Stannis ever gets. We're getting a more complicated look at him, and also at Melisandre. It's so telling that Davos' argument, at least his first argument against the Red Woman, is that she got his sons killed. There are so many better arguments to make against Melisandre. How about she burns people alive? Or, your grace, she's visibly stealing your soul. But those aren't the reasons Davos emerged from the sea clutching a knife aimed at her throat. He wants her dead in exchange for his sons. Because that's the human element. Grounding Davos as a character with his own interests and motivations beyond just serving Stannis like a good little boy. It's hard to disagree when Stannis points out that Pretty much everyone else involved is more to blame for Davos's dead sons than Melisandre. So from Stannis' perspective, Davos's revenge quest just makes no sense. That's why he wanted Davos to evaluate Axel's plan to sack Claw Isle. I think he wanted to test the Onion Knight, to see if he was still reliable. And I also think Davos is, at least partially, trying to exercise his own guilt. He was the one who got his sons involved in the war, not Melisandre. He was the one present on the battlefield. She wasn't. If she'd been there, maybe they'd still be alive. Yeah,
1: really? Davos kind of got his sons killed the day he hitched himself to Stannis. Maybe that's a bit simplistic, but that's what happens when you tie yourself to lords and kings. At some point, the Game of Thrones comes for you, you and your family. Davos raised his sons to be good seafaring soldiers, but they were conscripted the day Davos decided to tie his own star
0: to that of Stannis. So if he can hold Melisandre responsible for everything that's gone wrong, she becomes this convenient other he can blamelessly kill. Rather than turning his rage against himself, or against the king he still loves. But the reality is that Melisandre kept Davos alive during his stay down in the dungeon. Axel wanted to burn the Onion Knight, but the Red Woman spoke up for him. That shocks Davos, but it really shouldn't. Melisandre has clearly and repeatedly indicated that she respects Davos. She would like for them to be best friends, please. Bizarre as that may seem in the context of their struggle for Stannis' soul. Unlike the Florence, she's genuinely interested in Davos' worldview in how he reaches his ethical conclusions, and then acts on them. We saw that at Storm's End, where she asked him if he was a good man. We saw it again when she visited him in his cell, praising him for always telling the truth, even when it gets him in trouble, saying, ah, the good knight is honest to the last. She compared herself to a knight, suggesting that Davos has a lot in common with her. They both rose from nothing, and they're both genuinely loyal to Stannis, a rare quality indeed. When Melisandre becomes a POV character in A Dance with Dragons, she thinks about how she's keeping Davos' son and heir Devon with her, to keep him out of the battle for Winterfell, because she thinks Davos has suffered enough. She says to herself, misguided as he was, his loyalty to Stannis could not be doubted. That's what Stannis tells Davos here. Melisandre knows that you're no friend to her god, but she also knows you are a friend to me, and she just cares more about that. She's got a pragmatic streak as well, it turns out. I think this is a lot more interesting than if Melisandre just, you know, hated Davos and wanted to burn him as much as the Florence do. That would kind of make it too easy on Davos, and instead he's caught in this ambiguous position where they are both faithful servants, as Stannis puts it, to the same cause. Well, how does he reconcile that? The team's Stannis storyline is all about duality. Two sides, two faces, heroic and villainous impulses all locked in there together. The ever-complicating characterization
1: of Melisandra is a really good call out, because I'm sure I don't have to remind you what chapter we are covering next that's set in a Heron Hall bathtub. Mm-hmm. In A Clash of Kings, Melisandra was a harder pill to swallow. She watches Crescent die at her feet, she burns gods, and births demons. Even in all of George's nuance, there's a streak of villainy there in its beginning that slowly starts to strip away here and is laid bare when we get to get inside her head in *A Dance with Dragons*. George isn't just great at coming up with characters; he's great at peeling back the layers. Dare I say, like an onion? And even the rotten even the rotten ones are worth peeling. Conversation then turns to the boy, which confuses Davos at first, since. Stannis is unwilling to name the child Edric Storm, so Davos at first thinks he means Devin, his son who also happens to be Stannis's squire. But it is Edric, and Edric is sick, and they have been leeching him. Stannis reveals that Davos and Edric's meet-cute was engineered by the Lady Melisandre too. Clearly, we are getting to the burning heart of the matter of why Davos was recalled from his cage. The ghost of Robert's past returns yet again, as we learn Robert directly doted on this boy during his visit to Storm's End, and indirectly doted on him with presents sent by Varys. Renly, ever Robert writ small, did much the same. And the boy seems to have much of his father's charm, winning over the people of Storm's End to the point that Courtney Penrose would rather die than give him to his uncle. Stannis is incredulous at the notion that Penrose thought Stannis meant to hurt the boy, He chose Robert, which means he implicitly chose to protect the boy, right? He made the choice of family over law, blood over honor. Here, he may be compromising on that, not permanently harming Edric Storm, but definitely can't say stealing someone's blood is a moral good. (laughs) And then there's the possible or probable future with Shireen and the others, where he does choose law over family or honor over blood and scare quotes around that honor. Davos, as shrewd as they come, notes that Stannis is not naming the boy. He refuses to call him Edric, a refusal to acknowledge the person beyond the jumble of bones and flesh and the blood inside him. Davos' victory is in naming the boy, just like it was naming the cruelty of Sir Axel's plan, to not let him be spoken about in abstraction or metaphor. Names have power in Georgia's story. Arya, Theon, and Sansa are just some of the characters on journeys to reclaim their name, something we will see intimately with the Kingslayer next chapter as well. Jamie, My name is Jamie. But I think there's also something to the fact that Melisandre refers to the great other as the one who cannot be named, the great Mm. evil as the one who cannot be named, and Stannis won't name the boy because burning him alive is another kind of evil and he's not naming it. But They're beating around the bush because what they're really talking about here is there is power in king's blood, or so she says. And, you know, Davos knows exactly who's
0: saying it, who would say such a thing, and who would get that kind of idea in Stannis' head. Isn't that interesting that Stannis doesn't, in that little scene there, he doesn't refer to either Edric or Melisandre by name. He's the boy, and Melisandre is just she. And that's Stannis' way of detaching himself from what she might do to the boy. And even before Davos knows what that is, he is freaked out by Stannis' refusal to say Edric's name, because he understands why, even if he doesn't know exactly what's happening. When Stannis first mentions the boy, Davos naturally thinks the king might be talking about Davos' own son Devon, the king's squire. Stannis praises Devon, again, the, a, little, a little flash of benevolence from Stannis when he <laughs> says, yeah, he's, he's a very good boy. He's basically a mini Davos, which is the ultimate compliment as far as Stannis is concerned. But Edric Storm is a mini Robert. And that, Stannis is less happy about. During the synopsis, I was making fun of how quickly and frequently Stannis changes the subject in this conversation, but part of what makes this chapter so brilliant is that, really, the subject never changes at all. On reread, you can see how Stannis is actually talking about Edric Storm the entire time. When he was talking about treason, he repeatedly emphasized that he was not a cruel man. It seemed like he was protesting too much. The Stannis we know wouldn't hesitate to punish Lord Asshole Florent, So why was the king so worried about being cruel? Why did he need Davos to reassure him? Because he wasn't thinking about Lord Asshole, he was thinking about Edric Storm. And what Melisandre wants to do to him is very cruel indeed. When Stannis monologued about how Robert was able to charm even his enemies, he was thinking about Edric. And I know that because Stannis delivers basically the same monologue word for word about the boy. He asks if Edric charmed Davos, saying the boy got that gift in his blood the king's blood that Maester Pylos has been leeching. It's like Stannis is trying to literally drain Edric of the charisma that haunts and frustrates him, that irreducible x-factor that made people love Robert, love Renly, but the middle Baratheon bro? Not so much. Stannis knows that the signature Robert charm is a projection, a shadow on a wall. It's a performance that doesn't always line up with your actions. As he says, Edric worshipped Robert, but like with the Brotherhood, it was the idea of Robert, more than the man himself. Edric got fabulous gifts from his father, but they weren't really from his father. They were from Varus. And that's a very recognizable dynamic from the real world, rich, powerful fathers outsourcing their parenting duties to an underling. Renly never raised Edric either, leaving the kid's upbringing to vassals like Courtney Penrose, who chose to die rather than give up Edric to Stannis. And I think that's
1: why Stannis specifically invoked Lord Grandison and Cafferin in the first half of this chapter. Mm -hmm. Grandison and Cafferin were charmed by Robert, and then ended up dying for him. Courtney Penrose
0: and Edric Storm have that very same relationship. That's what infuriates Stannis. That Baratheon charm might be bullshit, but it works. It gets people on your side. Edric has that charm, and Stannis doesn't, even though Stannis bears the Baratheon name, and Edric is bastard-born. So step back and take a look at what's happening here. Stannis built up years of resentment for Robert. After Robert died, he transferred those resentments to Renly, and now that Renly is dead, the chip on Stannis' shoulder is all about Edric Storm. We just keep getting younger, as if we're slowly zooming in on Shireen. Stannis says he still doesn't understand why Courtney Penrose refused to give up Edric and save his own life. After all, didn't Stannis choose Robert over Eris, blood over honor? And this pulls together all of the disparate conversations in the chapter. What Stannis is overlooking is that he has clearly come to regret choosing Robert, to the point of killing Renly, a.k.a. young Robert. He has now turned against the very king's blood that he claims makes him the rightful heir to the Iron Throne. He's not even flying the Baratheon banner anymore. And so, Courtney Penrose might have sensed that Stannis would take out his resentments on Edric next. And now Davos is starting to sense the same thing. Stannis points to the painted table and
1: says it's not seven kingdoms, but one. Something Aegon the Conqueror saw 300 years ago, and possibly based on a prophecy if hot D can be believed. He sees Westeros as one realm for one king to rule, no borders, or as we say over at the Metal Gear Solid podcast, Sans Frontiers. It's a vision that can be can be read two ways. On one level, it's like Napoleon standing over the maps of Europe. We know from dance that Stannis does wish to impose his culture and laws on the local and indigenous peoples beyond the wall, so perhaps this is so perhaps this imperial framework is apt. But it can also be liberating. Artificial boundaries mostly meant to provoke animosity between neighboring lords instead of fostering the building of community. We see that in Dance too. Despite Stannis' attempted cultural genocide of the Free Folk, he also views them as people and not the enemy, which makes him distinct from the other highborns we've met in the story. But to be clear, abolishing borders doesn't necessarily lead to that community without doing some work people have a way to artificially throw up their own walls and barriers. As Robert Frost
0: ironically said, good fences make good neighbors. Yes, indeed. And I've been saying that Stannis' motivations are more personal than political, but that's not to say he lacks a governing philosophy. Stannis says he'll bring justice to Westeros, cutting across the petty power plays of the various feudal lords to forge Westeros into a single polity. Even more so than in Egon the Conqueror's Day, because he never conquered Dorne, and because, as you say, Stannis considers the wildlings to be part of his realm, for better or for worse. And that has the potential to do a lot of good. I think you could argue that the real political problem in Westeros isn't even the Iron Throne itself, so much as the class system surrounding it. What if you took Stannis' impulse to scour the court clean, and aimed it at the nobility as a whole? It reminds me of the V, aka Egg, and his attempts to create a model of justice that superseded the lords' rights to pit and gallows. If you create direct links between the people and the crown, you could uproot systematic injustice in Westeros to a large degree, by depriving the lords of the legal right to abuse and exploit their people. I say could, because this model would depend heavily on the character of the king in question. They could also abuse this power. Would Stannis? Well, it's hard to say. Again, it's ambiguous. I think you captured both sides of it really well. On one hand, this is where he reveals his disgust for Axel Florent and his plan to attack Claw Isle, saying that Axel has no conception of justice at all. He goes so far as to call the plan evil, which is a big deal. We haven't seen this before in the story one of the kings declaring that it is morally reprehensible to slaughter the small folk simply because they serve a lord who serves a different king. Even the kind hearted King Rob has never gone that far. We didn't see his campaign in the Westerlands, but I guarantee a bunch of civilians died in it for no crime other than being born in Lannister territory. Stannis wants to establish a clear link between actions and consequences, liberating justice from purely political concerns. He says that Lord Celtigar, and Lord Celtigar alone, has to own what he did. Everyone has to own what they have done. This is where Stannis really emerges as a religious figure, not in-universe as a zora high, but in terms of the writing process. George is piling on the Christian guilt he is very familiar with from childhood. Stannis is the embodiment of God, calling you to account for your sins. Makes me think of the the Johnny Cash song, "The, The Man Comes Around. There's a man going around taking names, and he decides who to free and who to blame. Everybody won't be treated all the same. There'll be a golden ladder reaching down when the man comes around. And again, there's a catharsis to that. Throughout the story, we have seen so many crimes go unanswered. Well, what if we had a king dedicated to answering them? They have made my kingdom bleed, Stannis says, a very Shakespearean line, a, a rich sweeping metaphor for the war. Westeros is like a person under assault, which we also saw in Danny's vision in House of the Undying. The land is crying out for someone to restore justice. As you say, I think the problem with Stannis's The Land is One model is that it overlooks genuine cultural and historical differences between the various peoples of Westeros. The North has their reasons to want independence, and Dorne fought for years to stay independent. Would Stannis just steamroll these local ideologies? Yeah, seems like he would, judging from his willingness to burn the Weirwoods. Can you really call that justice? Well, what does Davos think? He doesn't even mention justice. What he says is, one king means peace. It's a Hobbesian view of politics, Human beings, left to their own devices, tend towards war and other forms of violence, so we need a central authority to prevent endless conflict. Even if you're not as cynical as all that, I think it's hard to argue against the idea that Westeros gets more violent the more decentralized it is. Maester Aemon told Jon that back when the Seven Kingdoms were Seven Kingdoms, they were constantly at war with each other. Now, a continental monarchy doesn't guarantee eternal peace the Targaryens had multiple civil conflicts, But there is a strong case to be made, that gathering Westeros together, under the Iron Throne, reduces conflict. It's on that basis they can stand together against the Others, who Stannis calls the only enemy that matters later in the book. And it's in the name of that model that Stannis raises Davos up once more. For this, I am of a mind to raise you to lord. And I love that Davos honestly doesn't know what Stannis is talking about. This? Davos was lost. He was just speaking the truth, trying to negotiate this very dangerous conversation, and doesn't even realize that he has just filled Stannis's sails with wind, inspiring him, through tough love, to realize his best self and find a good reason to keep going. If this chapter is some sweeping adventure on a micro scale,
1: what happens next is the turn, the big shock, the climax. Stannis orders Davos to a knee and raises him up as lord, as admiral, as hand of the fucking king. You can insert that Avengers Endgame portal scene reaction right here into the chapter. (laughs) A few pages ago, we were in the bowels of Dragonstone's jail. We feared punishment and death for one of the last good men in Westeros. Yet here we are, witnessing Lord Seaworth's astronomical rise to power. He didn't intentionally grasp for the star, but it fell in his lap as a result of his unrelenting good counsel and honest feedback. Stannis dubs him as such with Lightbringer, unsheathed for the first time this book. Symbolically, this is the first step to Stannis once again taking up arms and continuing his war for the Iron Throne, or the Great War, as we inch closer to his campaign up north. But like with Maester Aemon later, Davos notes that despite the brilliant reds and oranges and yellows, Lightbringer feels like any other sword on his shoulder. Davos's station, or lack thereof, makes him a poor choice in his own eyes, but where Davos sees shortcoming, Stannis sees strength. To be a lord is to be false, is what Stannis calls it. And funnily enough, from this point on, Davos becomes much more false, or rather more deceptive. By book's end, he'll steal away Edric Storm before a worse fate can befall him, and in A Dance with Dragons, he promises to preserve Lord Burrell's duplicitous posterity in backing a king, and will unwillingly be part of a fake death plot that allows him and the Manderlys to find a way forward for a political alliance. It's Andy Dufresne's, I had to be sent to prison to become a criminal, played out for lordship instead. Davos, we the reader know, is a good and great choice for this position. But as Stannis admits, it's not like he has any better options. (laughs) Sir Axel may be the best of his remaining backers, but Stannis basically calls him evil outright here. Stannis needs someone who is honest, who is battle-tested, who he can trust as they prepare for battles, though
0: not the battle against Lannisters as Davos had assumed totally agreed about the structure of this chapter you get all this tension building up in multiple ways and then the big catharsis the release of stannis naming davos his new hand honestly this is probably the most politically triumphant moment in the story for me or at least in westeros we'll put this behind dracarys over in slaver's bay george captures it perfectly in davos's thoughts i woke this morning in his dungeon that sums up davos's story rising from the bottom to the top he was born in the slums of Fleabottom, lowest of the low, whose lives and deaths, fears and desires, mean nothing to the high lords playing the game of thrones. He became a smuggler, scraping a living out of the black market, an economy that doesn't make it into the official record books. And he easily could have lived out his days as that guy. But instead, he rose to knighthood, and now to lordship. More than lordship, hand of the king, he's the second most powerful man on Dragonstone. And he rose not due to wealth, or having the right last name, but due to the courage of his words and actions. He saved the day at Storm's End, risking his neck to smuggle in food to starving men. When Stannis, being Stannis, demanded that Davos lose his fingers as the price for class mobility, Davos accepted, as long as Stannis wielded the knife himself. Now he becomes a lord because he was willing to speak hard truths to his king. Again, risking his neck, Axel explicitly threatened his life. But Davos did it anyway, out of loyalty not only to his king, but to his values. And now Davos is rewarded for it, honored for it, going from prisoner to hand of the king in a matter of hours, because Stannis was able to recognize his worth, his sea worth. It's the rarest of things, a good person being put in charge by virtue of being a good person. Stannis is right when he says there was no man fitter, and this is an important moment in his story as well, because it's the moment when this in-between man most thoroughly embraces his best self he turns his back on the corruption and heedless violence of his own class, recognizing the merit in a peasant. Now, Stannis is not the first king to do that, just look at Jaehaerys with Septon Barth, but what makes this so special is, again, why Stannis is raising up Davos. Because Davos will tell him that which Stannis doesn't want to hear, but needs to hear. And I think that's one of the defining features of good leadership, honoring those both smart and brave enough to offer constructive criticism. Stannis knows that Davos is a true friend to him, where Axel Florent is loyal only to his own ambition. Davos, naturally, wants nothing to do with this. It's a clear parallel to Robert naming Ned his hand near the beginning of the story. Here we have another Baratheon king bestowing the handpin on his best friend, or only friend in <laughs> Stannis's case, even though the friend in question doesn't actually want the job. But the specific character motivations are different. Ned didn't want the handpost because he wanted to stay at Winterfell, home and family, a political game he's familiar with, rather than lose himself in the viper's nest of court politics, that swallowed up his father, his brother, and his sister. For Davos, the sticking point isn't about location. It's about class. I stink of fish and onions, he reminds Stannis. I wasn't born to this life. Your other lords will never obey me, which kind of makes me useless as a hand. It reminds me of the Night's Watch election later in the book, when Dennis Malister and Cotter Pike are competing for votes. This is how Dennis makes the case for himself to Sam. We are the sons of great lords, you and I. We know the importance of birth, blood, and that early training that can never be replaced. I was a squire at 12, a knight at 18, a champion at 2 and 20. I have been the commander at the Shadow Tower for 33 years. Blood, birth, and training have fitted me to deal with kings. He even mentions that Cotterpike is illiterate, which Davos also brings up here as a knock against himself. But Stannis doesn't care about any of that. He considers the trappings of power to be detriments. Look at how Lord Asshole Florent worked out his hand. What matters, he says, is honesty, loyalty, and service. That's how the feudal contract is supposed to work. That's what lordship is supposed to mean. And it's only by living a life outside the system that Davos has acquired those values, more so than anyone born to it. It's the existential heroism of living up to that which the world at large does not. Davos takes the vows he recites here very seriously, as he tells Stannis after freeing Edric Storm, I swear to protect your people, and he's one of your people, so I need to protect him, even from you. And you can see the the power of this just in the imagery, it's really well done here. George describes Lightbringer as Stannis pulls it from its sheath, a blaze of fiery colors filling up the room, sparkling like a jewel, he writes. But when it touches Davos' shoulders, it feels like an ordinary sword. And that could be framed as a critique, like when Maester Amien tells Sam that while Lightbringer might look pretty, there is no heat coming off of it. So it's not the genuine article, implying that Stannis won't be able to keep people safe during the long night. But here it works differently, because of how it fits into Davos' character arc. Unlike the Florence, he doesn't surround himself with fancy colors and sparkling jewels. He's just a plain, ordinary sword. But he's the strongest of all of them, where it counts. All that is gold does not glitter. So he leapfrogs Axel and all the other noble-born assholes to become Stannis' new right-hand man. And if those other lords don't like it, then we will make new lords, says Stannis, another line that makes me pump my fist and holler. Screw these assholes who think their name makes them better than you. If they think they're just too important to serve an honest, courageous smuggler, well then fine, they don't have to. We'll take their lordship away and give it to someone who will. Now that is an idea which could genuinely transform Westeros. Stannis doesn't just want one Davos. He wants an entire class of Davoses to help him run things. And while Stannis often talks a good game more than he puts his words into action, he begins to walk the walk in a dance with dragons by raising up wildlings. Now this is a positive use of Stannis' resentments, his alienation from his own class. Topple them and replace them with better men. Hell yeah, I can get behind this platform. Emmett knows the way to my heart was to frame Stannis as a class traitor,
1: the good kind, (laughs) and sir... It is working, but it's very much true, and outside of Mance Raider, the closest we've seen a king take a shot at the entire noblesse, or the concept thereof, is here. It's a mixed bag with Stannis, the good doesn't wash out the bad, nor the bad the good. That goes back to what I said earlier, his devotion to the Iron Throne in rolor may make his desire for one Westeros seem theocratic and totalitarian, but there's also animus for the class structure holding Westeros in place. Hopefully, though, Stannis has right up on the French Revolution, because once the class structure
0: starts toppling, so does the crown, and so does the church. Exactly. That's the ambiguity. He would be tossed out with it if he genuinely applied this this ideal. And yeah, even in this this triumphant wish-fulfillment moment where Davos gets honored for all the right reasons, there is still the ambiguity that defines this storyline. Davos brings us crashing back down to Earth by agreeing with his disgraced predecessor, Lord Asshole Florent. We cannot win another battle against the Lannisters. So while it's great that Davos is in charge, now the question becomes, what is he in charge of, exactly? Where will they go? What will they do
1: next? It is the great battle he means, says Melisandre, finally entering stage right with the serving dish. Her presence has been kindling burning in the back of Davos' mind all chapter, but she properly catches flame here, arriving, though, with barely a notice. Melisandre has shown Stannis his enemy in the flames, and it is not the Golden Lions of Lannister he saw. It was white shadows in the cold dark, haranguing the men of the Night's Watch. While this is all very confusing for Davos, the reader knows exactly what he's referring to. Mormont's escape from the fist and the ring of fire used to ward off the others. The battle has already begun, warns Melisandre, and only the prince that was promised, the one true king, has strength enough to oppose the Great Other. And very conveniently, the prince that was promised just so happens to be in this room, the very man that both Davos and Melisandre serve. Well,
0: that works out nicely, doesn't it? What a coincidence. And yeah, this scene is is both tragedy and farce, especially coming back to it after season one of House of the Dragon. Like you said, the readers know more than any of the characters, even on your first time through the story. We have seen that attack on the Night's Watch play out in hideous fashion. But we've also known about the return of the White Walkers since the very beginning of the story. Like George has said, the Game of Thrones takes place under the shadow of the Song of Ice and Fire. We're always supposed to remember the apocalyptic threat sweeping down from the north, and evaluate the politics of the realm on that basis. While the Civil War has of course been devastating on its own terms, it's also poisoned any sense of unity that would really come in handy when the continent has to fend off the Long Night. So we've been waiting for any authority figure south of the wall to recognize the problem. And we have been waiting in vain. Ned beheaded Garrod for deserting his post, Tyrion ignored Thorne's warning, and Tywin doesn't take the wildlings seriously, let alone the others. Now, finally, someone sees what we saw. There is a king in Westeros who knows the end of the world is coming, and wants to do something about it. Unfortunately, that king is Stannis, the least popular and least powerful king in the game. That's the great irony here. The only faction taking the Long Night seriously is the one least capable of doing anything about it. The Lannisters have a huge army and many powerful allies. Rob does too, if less than he used to. Even the Ironborn have troops in the North.
1: And Rob and, to a lesser degree, the Ironborn have some home field advantage and
0: knowledge of the North by itself. All of these assets they could put to work if they were the ones who learned about this, if they were the ones who took it seriously. But instead it's Stannis with his, his like 1,500 men he has <laughs> left just squatting on this rock getting drunk, and his own hand of the king just tried to sell him out to his enemies. So why me? Stannis asks. Why would Rhaelor pick me to save the world? It's the same question we see haunting characters in House of the Dragon. And this storyline is how George introduces the prophecy of the prince that was promised into A Song of Ice and Fire itself. And just as with the characters in Hot D, the prophecies are unclear, so flawed human beings fill in the gap with their own projected narratives. So one last
1: time, the ghosts of Stannis's brothers needle him. The peach juice running down Renly's face, the boisterous laugh of Robert, either would have been a better choice than Stannis
0: as savior of the realm, right? Well, too bad they're both dead. What's even the point of comparing yourself to dead men? I mean, probably the best person for this job would be Jaehaerys the Old King, or maybe Queen Alysanne. And they're equally dead. Who cares? Well, because, as you say, Stannis' brothers are haunting him. The literal walking dead may await the prince that was promised, but Stannis has metaphorical ghosts with him wherever he goes, fitting the gloomy, gothic atmosphere of Dragonstone. I love the image of Renly's peach juice dribbling down his chin, blurring into the blood pouring from his throat. That's a great poetic way of capturing how Renly's youthful energy, which defined him, gave way to death. Stannis still frames Renly's death as his own fault, saying that he should have done his duty. But he's clearly mourning what could have been. Together we could have smashed the Lannisters. And that would have put Robert's ghost to rest. Maybe, just maybe, I'd be able to let him go. Instead, there's only Stannis, last of the Baratheons, once the ruling family of Westeros, now replaced and forgotten. And for all that Stannis insists that he's the rightful king who will finally bring justice to Westeros, part of him feels that he is just not up for the job. Stannis' story is, I think, a tragedy, and here he expresses the heart of it. I never beat Robert at anything. He was just better than me, inherently. In a better world, he would be the Lord of Lights champion, because he might have been able to get it done, and I can't. I am a flawed vessel for the holy fire. I am brittle, as Donald Noy said, it's going to burn me from the inside out. It's like what his fellow second brother Ned Stark said. Why has this cup passed to me? It's because he's a righteous man,
1: says Melisandre. A righteous man with leeches. That's right. It looks like leeches back on the menu, boys. (laughs) The serving dish Melisandre entered with holds three leeches, fat with the blood of Edric Storm. Fat with King's blood, specifically. It's a middle way, as Melisandre wants to sacrifice the boy in full. To wake the stone dragon is the purpose, which is of course a phrase that Sikkos have turned over in their heads for <laughs> decades now. Are the stone dragons, the gargoyles ordaining Dragonstone, waiting to shed their rocky casing and take flight again? Does she refer to dragon eggs like Daenerys birthed earlier, which Magist- Magister Illyrio had described as turned to stone? Could it possibly refer to Young Grift, the dragon who will turn into a stone via Grayscale? Whatever she means, she clearly does not have enough blood to accomplish that. She presses Stannis more on it. What's one life against thousands? Against millions of children? The utilitarian play is quite clear here. And the boy's very presence is an insult to Stannis, right? Conceived in his own wedding bed by his lecherous brother. But again, this is easily the most likable the king has been all series to this point. He comes to Edric's defense as not being at fault for, the, for his own existence. Plus, <laughs> Shireen likes him. This kind of balances out what he said earlier, invoking Shireen just as an excuse for the Iron Throne. At least here, you're kind of considering her feelings and desires. Stannis also stops short of giving his third history lesson of the chapter. We also got the history of traitors and Robert's Rebellion. Mm-hmm. But he hints at the Targaryen attempts to rebirth dragons and the folly that comes with it. Summerhall was a site of one of those great Targaryen follies perhaps the greatest of them in terms of who was taken, but it was also the site where Robert beat Grandison and Catherine. Again, in this chapter, we have the political and the magical intersecting. And of course, Rhaegar Targaryen was born at Summerhall during that folly, one of the characters who mostly
0: resides at the crossroads of politic and magic. It's so funny you point out Stannis restrains himself from giving the full history lesson, but then he does give it in Davos's next chapter. He lists every time the Targaryens tried to bring the dragons back and how it failed. That was probably George going, "All right, this chapter's long. Let's have Stannis monologues. Let's just delay this till till next time." And yeah, this is where we finally get the big reveal of what is actually going down on Dragonstone these days, and it's it's been a very effective buildup. This kind of the slow drip, the slow burn. In Davos' second chapter in this book, Salador mentioned rumors about Stannis and Melisandre taking secret meetings in the volcano. In his third chapter, Alistair Florence said that they were up to something crazy about a stone dragon. And now, here in Davos' fourth chapter, it all comes together. Melisandre wants to burn Edric Storm alive as a sacrifice to her god, which will bring a stone dragon to life, or so she claims. Like I said, this is what Stannis has really been talking about the entire time. This is why he wanted Davos to tell him he's not cruel. This is why he's still bringing up Robert and his king's blood. This, even more than being defeated by Renly's ghost, is why Stannis looks like something is eating him alive from the inside. He is considering doing something evil, to borrow his own description of the plan to attack Claw Isle. Hard to imagine anything more cartoonishly villainous than burning a child at the stake, especially your own relative. All for the sake of creating a creature Stannis can use to save the world. Oh, and conquer Westeros while he's at it. George wants us, I think, to critically evaluate these high fantasy miracles. What's the cost? What's the benefit? Melisandre makes the utilitarian argument. We're talking about giving up one life to save millions. And she'll uh, build on that in a later Davos chapter where she says, I'm, you know, if you, if, you, if you don't do this, you're not really saving Edric Storm's life either because he's going to die in the long night too. Stannis makes the deontological counter-argument that regardless of the outcome... This is a betrayal of Edric Storm, the individual person, who's innocent. Melisandre tries to muddy the waters there, saying that Edric's birth defiled Stannis' marriage, which is why he has no sons of his own. Celise will make the same argument next time, and it's, it's, a smart, it's a smart move, if very callous, hitting Stannis in one of his main vulnerabilities, his failure to produce a male heir. But he keeps his temper here and stays on target. Robert was the one who actually made the decision to fuck in Stannis' marriage bed. You can't hold Edric responsible for the circumstances of his conception. Stannis is building on the argument he made about Claw Isle. You can only hold people to account for what they do, not some nebulous definition of who they are. Again, Stannis is at his best when he echoes Davos. But there's a practical argument to be made as well as an ethical one. Stannis points out that the Targaryens tried repeatedly to bring the dragons back why would we succeed where they failed? I love his line, Patchface is the only fool we need on this god's forsaken rock. Hinting how much he really hates Dragonstone, like you were saying earlier, he hates that he was condemned to this place. I've said before that Shireen and Patchface are mirror images of Stannis and Melisandre. The king and his sorceress act all important, but deep down, Stannis is a lonely child, and Melisandre is his only friend who speaks in riddles. The ultimate appeal of all the prophecy talk to Stannis isn't literal. He doesn't really take Azor Ahai all that seriously. It's the idea of being something more than he is. The idea that a small man can cast a large shadow. So by the time we check in again with Team Dragonstone, Stannis has been gradually convinced by Melisandre. And when Davos throws his own the-boy-is-innocent argument back in his face, Stannis rejects it. Meanwhile, the reader knows that you... Can in fact wake dragons from stone. We saw Danny do it. And we know that Miri Mazdur's sacrificial death was probably part of why that worked. So now we're going round two, with only death can pay for life. Stannis will, for the moment, settle for a half measure. He doesn't want the boy dead, but he does want his fellow monarchs dead, to pave his way to the Iron Throne. So for now, the matter is settled. We're doing ounces, not gallons,
1: of Edric's blood. <laughs> Melisandre tells Stannis to speak the names as he throws each leech into the fire, something that sticks out given how reluctant Stannis is to say the boy's name, the boy whose blood is being used to further his own campaign for the throne. And of the three names he utters, two of them are still basically boys. And Stannis speaks the name of the three usurpers, of Joffrey, of Balin Greyjoy, and of course Rob Stark, whose loss is most imminent and most painful for the reader. I honestly wish I remember what I felt the first time I read this chapter. My own dumbass probably didn't even get the king's blood power that was being used in this narrative. Last time we talked about how Theon only gets a handful of mentions in A Storm of Swords, and his father and king gets even fewer. With no real eyes on the ironborn in this book, you'd almost forget about him if not for Rob's strategizing in later cat chapters. No one forgets about Joffrey, but like you said, back in our Sansa 3 episode, Joffrey was held back for most of this book, appearing only so far in that chapter. But Rob, Rob's plight has been front and center all book, and we're coming off one of the most depressing Rob-focused chapters to date. So I gotta say, I wasn't a fan of Stannis saying Rob's name here. Most of my personal love for Stannis comes as a result of his actions at the end of this, and especially in A Dance with Dragons. Here and now, though, especially the first time through, I was like, how dare you try to kill the king in the north? Mm -hmm. Especially after a chapter in which Stannis was as awesome as ever. We'll talk about how much effect the leeches had in our discussion section, but it definitely felt like a thorn at the end of a chapter
0: in which I felt sympathetic to Stannis' cause. Totally agreed. And here's the thing. Stannis knows it. I love how George writes the burning of the leeches. It's a perfect rule of three structure, and a great example of how the author gets across what's going on in Stannis' head, despite him not being a POV character. First, he burns the leech representing Joffrey. No surprises there. Joffrey would have to die for Stannis to take the Iron Throne, and he stands in for the Lannister regime Stannis despises. But then, when Stannis burns the leech representing Balen Greyjoy, George writes that he says the name louder this time. Well, that's interesting. Why might that be? Balin hasn't made any move against Stannis. He's not even claiming the Iron Throne. Maybe it's because Balin Greyjoy is a grown-ass adult, and Joffrey, like Edric Storm, is not. So Stannis has an easier time wishing Balin dead. And we wouldn't know that if George hadn't written that his voice got louder, more assured in that moment. And then, the third and final leech, representing Rob. Now Stannis hesitates, looking down at the leech as it tries to escape his grasp. And I think you made a great point that the reader is more invested here, not only because we're more inclined to be sympathetic to the Starks, but because we spent a lot of time with Rob in this book. And Stannis has a complicated relationship with the Starks. On one hand, Ned had a great deal of respect for Stannis back in book one. He went down declaring that the middle Baratheon bro was the rightful heir to the Iron Throne, rejecting not only the Lannisters, but also Renly in Stannis' name. As Jon says about Stannis when they meet in the show, I know he's the king. My father died for him. Rob's campaign in the Clash of Kings was predicated on Stannis taking the throne, because Rob would much rather make a deal with him than with the Lannisters. And you can see the potential for an alliance there. Stannis' grim, stoic personality, his permanent warrior mindset, everything that makes him so unpopular in the south, would actually play pretty well in the north. But on the other hand, Stannis always resented Ned for being the brother Robert chose. Robert loved Ned more than he did Stannis, Robert thanked Ned for lifting the siege at Storm's End instead of thanking Stannis for holding the castle, and when John Arryn died, Robert named Ned his new hand instead of turning to Stannis. Stannis's new religion is also a sticking point. In a dance with dragons, plenty of Northmen choose Stannis over the Boltons, the Mountain Clans, the Mormonts, Crowfood Umber, even Wyman Manderly, in secret at least. But there's no way any of them would be on board with burning Weirwoods, like Stannis did at Storm's End, And so once the Boltons are dealt with, I think the North will choose the Starks once more, crowning John as king in the North like they did in the show. When Stannis is talking to John on the wall later in this book, he says that Ned was no friend of his, but was a worthy man of honor. He derides Rob as a rebel and a traitor who meant to steal half my kingdom, but Stannis also admits that no one can deny the young wolf's courage. Deep down, Stannis knows that the Starks are not his enemies. If things had gone differently... They easily could have been allies even friends and so he hesitates you can see his inner conflict in this moment that part of him knows he is crossing a line he really shouldn't cross but as asha says when she meets him in the dance with dragons stannis is defined by an iron ferocity that will never ever let him turn back from his course so the struggle passes stannis says the name and gives the leech to the flames just as he will with shireen and so his doom is sealed Every bit as much as Rob's. So, moving into the uh, Foreshadowing and Groundwork section, among the many reasons Davos gives for why Stannis should not make him the hand, he says he doesn't know how to read. Stannis says that's not important, but it begins to change in the next Davos chapter when Maester Pylos offers to teach him. Yeah, whatever else is wrong with the Stannis adaptation in Game of Thrones,
1: I gotta say, giving Shireen that role and making her Davos' reading teacher
0: were among my favorite scenes and just a very strong adaptation choice. I thought that was very smart, because you don't, you're don't—you're not you not going to have room for Maester Pylos, he's such a minor character. Shireen is kind of the locus of audience sympathy on Dragonstone. Having that connection uh, be kind of uh, the heart of those episodes, I think, was a really smart move. And then, of course, the other big bit of foreshadowing here all three of the kings stand as names and do, do indeed die in this book. First, Balin Greyjoy, then Rob, and finally, Joffrey, which they do differently in the show. They uh, kill off Rob and Joffrey, and then they kind of keep Balin on ice until they kill him off in season six, which was uh, kind of annoying, I guess, although I do like that Balin Greyjoy is so proud about being the last of the five kings, even though he has nothing at all and no one cares about him. But uh, in, yeah, in the books, it's it's very, it's very quick, actually. They happen. Over the next couple of Davos chapters, all three of these kings get killed off. So uh, speaking of which, moving into theory and discussion, speaking of the three dead kings, the, the kind of question that emerges from this chapter, especially coming back on reread, is what's exactly going on with the leeches? Like, what's, what's the effect of doing this? Is this real magic on Melisandre's part? Is it just for show, or is it somewhere in between? What do you think? They're real, they're strong, and they're my friends. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, absolutely I it's, it's one of
1: those things it's kind of like you said in our kind of just summary of this is like this is where like the political and the magical and all and the personal individual actions like the results of all three of those are kind of at play in this chapter and it really kind of takes all of those things combined to lead to the deaths of all these things um, because you know Balin Greyjoy was killed by a faceless man so there's a little ma- magical element in there um, Joffrey it's not quite magic but you know the poison is kind of its own little fantasy element so it's like it knowing like this would be such a different question if you asked it before we had the Melisandre point of view chapters yep. where we know that she is a little bit of sleight of hand and cloak and dagger and smoke and mirrors or whatever the right expression is there. Like we know she does some of this as a performance to make what she can actually do sing even that much more louder. And I I have no idea because as far as I can tell, she's three for three with leeches. She has three leeches and they all lead to a killed person. I can't believe that she actually did, but I think there's also something to the fact that what she says is like, it will work and it won't. Like it does kill the kings, but it doesn't get Stannis any closer to the crown. So it is really like that perfect mystery where if someone said it's completely for show, I'd be like, yeah, I see that. And if they said it's completely real, I'd be like, yep, yeah, that's also true.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of evidence in both directions and it's never fully confirmed. I, you know, I do think that it wasn't directly responsible for the death of the kings because if nothing else, the the plans to kill all three of them are already in motion at this point. Like, Euron is already on his way back home. The re- the planning for the Red Wedding is already going strong. Elena has already decided to kill off Joffrey. So unless Melisandre is time-traveling to make those motivations happening, it-, it doesn't seem likely she's directly responsible. But on the other hand, like, she's really confident to be walking into this moment with those three leeches. And, like, what if none of those three kings die anytime soon? Like, she would look terrible to Stannis at that point. He wouldn't believe her again. I think the most likely explanation is that Melisandra saw the deaths of these three coming in the flames and was like, you know, if I can pretend that I did this or that I had a hand in this, that might be enough buy-in to convince Stannis to get on board with burning his nephew. Because you're totally right, even after all three of these kings die, Stannis is no closer to the Iron Throne, which... You know, duh. It's not like they're just going to automatically go, well, yeah, I guess Stannis was right after all. Like, of course Tywin crowns Tommen. Of course Euron takes the the Iron Islands, and if he wasn't there, one of his other relatives would. And the North hasn't crowned someone yet, but like I said earlier, I think they will eventually choose a Stark over Stannis. So that ultimately, I think Melisandre's purpose is to is to frustrate Stannis enough to get him to go, to get on board with burning Edric Storm for, for something more powerful. So I I would come down in between. And like you said, Melisandre's POV chapter in dance, even though it doesn't explicitly get into this topic, is the kind of Rosetta Stone to explain a lot of her actions that she is, she's a lot like Varus. She's a, she's a politician and she knows how to make herself seem more powerful than she is in order to get what she wants, which is part of what makes her really interesting. I kind of
1: like what you're saying about how she maybe saw the death of the kings, and then she put together this little ceremony. And knowing a little bit about how kind of abstract or metaphorical her visions are, because it is indeed the leech lord that kills Robb Stark in terms of Roose Bolton, I wonder if she saw something with leeches amongst the mix, and that's where she got the idea that, ah, if we use leeches, we can make a blood show and do all sorts of things. I mean... I don't know what other animal you could use to suck up blood and throw it, but you could just like, you could, you could just have, siphon it off. Yeah, yeah, you could just have Edric cut his wrist and just like, or his palm and just drip a little butt, blood onto a fire or something.
0: So I wonder if the leech was actually somewhat part of a vision that she might have had too. That's an excellent idea. I would love that. Yeah. If she saw a leech representing Roos, maybe she saw Rob, you know, beheaded with the wolf's head on him and thought, well, that has to be a symbolism. That's just a metaphor from a lore. And then you hear about the red Wedding and go, oh no, that was very literal. They actually did that to that guy. So that is, at last, going to wrap us up for a Storm of Swords Davos 4. Thank you so much for listening. As always, if you want to drop us a rating or a review on your podcast app of choice, we really appreciate that. It helps people find us. You can check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash iif, where our patrons get benefits including exclusive episodes, early access to our regular episodes, and access to the not slack You can follow us on Twitter at notacastasoiaf or shoot us an email at notacastasoiaf at gmail.com and you can find me at pork Quentin on Twitter, and I'm Manu, also known as the Nuclear Bomb. You can find our ongoing coverage of the Lord of the Rings over at My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. And I have put out my most recent Star Wars episode for all five dollars and above patrons. My fourth episode on Revenge of the Sith that's out now. My next uh, Lord of the Rings episode is going to be in a couple weeks' time, wrapping up book five. But uh, next week, we're not going to be putting out any of those episodes. We have a a special episode wrapping up 2022, just talking about uh, some of the stuff we watched and really enjoyed this year. So that's going to be out for everyone next week, then the Lord of the Rings episode, and then the week after that, we're going to be back with Acewaf, back with a Storm of Swords Jamie Five, in which he tells the full story of how he became the Kingslayer, and then has dinner with an up-and-coming Kingslayer, Roose Bolton. Ah, It's always nice to mentor the new kids on the block. Plus, Brienne's there, and people think she's a Kingslayer, so you really got a trifecta going. <laughs> you have all, all the Kingslayers, a, a conference of Kingslayers. That should be one of the book titles, a conference of Kingslayers. Uh, uh, right in time for Christmas, you have a Kingslayer of Christmas past, a Kingslayer of Christmas <laughs> present, and a Kingslayer of Christmas future. Now I'm picturing Roos just wearing a little Santa hat. It's, <laughs> it's kind of perfect. So thanks again for listening, and we will see you next time in Westeros for A Storm of Swords, Jamie 5.